if you found us here, you're probably a little like me. You think it's time to rethink the way that we do business. I'm your host, Raya Gonzalez, and this is the Client Experience Revolution. This podcast is for entrepreneurs and will give you all the tips, tricks, and tools that other badass business leaders are using to serve their community, their clients, while still taking care of themselves. So let's dive into this week's episode, have a little fun, and learn along the way too. This episode is brought to you by Link Consulting Solutions. Are you a badass entrepreneur looking to up-level your capacity, maybe supercharge your clarity and reconnect like a rock star? We'll head on over to linkcs.com to find out how we can accomplish this and more. We have virtual assistant matchmaking as well as clarity and client re-engagement consulting. That's L-I-N-Q-C-S.com. See you there. Hello, and welcome to the Client Experience Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Raya Gonzalez, and I am honored today to have Daniel Bileo. I said it wrong. It's Biao. <laughs> you know how I remembered? Because you told me your daughter said meow. <laughs> Daniel Biao with me, and he is the CEO of iPartnerships, and we are going to be talking about diversity and inclusion And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast, Daniel. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. Uh, Better you, you ruin my, my name than a meal. That's true. That's true. (laughs) Although I would probably ruin your meal too, but it's okay. I would have my husband cook it. He's a, he's a fantastic cook. So (laughs) well, tell us a little bit about iPartnerships, about yourself and the ventures that you're um, involved with. Um, sure. So that we can get to know you a little bit better and how you serve the community. Sure. Happy to help. So Intelligent Partnerships is a firm I founded uh, a decade ago where it took us 13 years to be an overnight success, right? Um, my wife is my partner and actually our CEO and our principal owner. Uh, so we're a woman-owned, wholly Latina-owned business um, where uh, I came back to work after serving under the Obama administration and uh, the previous administration uh, at the federal level. So I was tasked there uh, in a senior executive role with the U.S. Department of Labor, um, redesigning the workforce system um, and uh, specifically the Office of Apprenticeship uh, and began educating industry on how to utilize, how to convert internships into apprenticeships and, and really magnify reduce their crew composition costs and magnify the impact that they could have uh, in terms of inclusion and um, et cetera, et cetera. So Intelligent Partnerships, were a strategic planning firm focused on diversity and inclusion. Uh, we really do that in three ways. The first is helping organizations design inclusion strategies, helping them uh, then adopt them and implement them, You know, creating stakeholder education internally and externally, et cetera. And then finally, um, and most importantly, in managing the compliance and um, data capture, the information that comes from those exercises. And really what we do in a nutshell is we verify what organizations claim that they're doing around diversity. And that's really where we make our bread and butter, where we come in as an independent third party validator and really just... Uh, ensure that the organizations that are making commitment to community are actually delivering on those promises. Not just putting the little 
statement on their website. They're actually that's exactly right. And so, uh, so yeah, I have a a resume that's extremely painful. Uh, uh, Only with for lots you. Of... It's not painful <laughs> for anyone else. <laughs> uh, uh, filled with a with a, a really broad journey. Um, I started in the construction trades and found out, figured out really quickly that I could contribute. Uh, at a lot higher level and um, made a decision with my family that I would go back to school and get my bachelor's and my MBA and uh, really uh, began speaking around the country um, um, after I authored my first book, uh, which was Beyond Green Jobs. Um, and that, uh, that really demonstrated how uh, public sector organizations and large organizations can create disruption with their investments, but also create opportunity. Um, by generating jobs and generating access to small minority disadvantaged businesses and uh, demonstrating how that can happen. So I'll pump the brakes there. I love it. And you know what? So this is the best part about the Client Experience Revolution podcast is that we can go off on tangents whenever we want. But I just want to plug my husband here because so my husband is first generation American citizen. He came here as a 16-year-old immigrant from Mexico, and he has been a citizen now for two years. Um, he became a citizen. He never like felt pressure. He was permanent resident. We've owned property. And, I, and then he would always give me crap around election time about who I was voting for. And I'd be like, whatever, get your own vote. And then he nice. decided with things in the political climate that they were, that, that it was time for him to get his own vote. So he became an American citizen. The one thing that I love, well, there's many things that I love about my husband. You can't be with somebody for 24 years without loving him a lot, but he is probably the hardest worker that I know. And um, we've lived through, we got married when we were 19 and 20. He was a cook nice. for Chili's and I was a waitress for IHOP. And we totally had it all together. And we were like, you know what? We are so ahead of the times. Let's become parents. Let's just do this. We're so ready. And um, we obviously were not ready. But my dad sat down with him and my dad said, um, you know, like, how are you going to take care of my daughter? And he said, well, I'll just work three jobs if I have to work three jobs. And he was like, eh, wrong answer. He says, I want you working one job one job. And he's like, well, Mr. Billington, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to do that because I'm just a cook from Mexico. Like I don't, you know, I, he didn't, you know, finish schooling because he had to support his family. He's one of nine siblings. He's the oldest boy. He you know, has a lot of obligations. And my dad says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to help you come to my work. And my dad worked in the shipyards. He says, you're going to be a helper. So he was the grunt boy and they would like grunt at him, like, mm, go yeah. get me this tool. And his English was not so bueno in that time. So he had to learn, not only did he have to learn the tools, but he had to learn English. And everyone who worked there were old, farty, white dudes. There yeah. may be a couple, handful of Filipino guys there, but for the most part, there were old, white guys. And he became what they called the pup. Like, they, he was like their mascot. Like, he, they watched him because they were all closer to retirement. They watched him grow and come into his own he worked for 10 years in the shipyards. He actually ended up, obviously, he didn't stay as a helper. He became an apprentice. Um, he finished a Washington State apprenticeship as a boilermaker through Todd Shipyards. 
And, um, and then now to this day, he actually left the shipyards about 14 years ago and he works for King County, which is the county that we work in. And he is a metal fabricator. So he's working in a government job and definitely success story. Somebody that if you were to look at him 20 years ago, there's no way, you know, that you would think that he would have climbed out of, you know, the situation that he was in because of the educational gaps and the literacy gaps and the different things that he he just didn't have the opportunities that other people did, but he had people that believed in him. And I'll never forget, and I know we're going on a little tangent here, but I'll never forget, like, just to go through the apprenticeship, there was math that was way above his level that he had never done this type of math before. And the guys at work would sit with him at lunch and they made worksheets and they would train him, math tutor him so that he could pass his math tests so that he could pass his apprenticeship. And these are, and so, and so here he is, you know, Latino, he's like the only one with all these white guys and they were just like, you're going to make it out of here. And they're like, they just said, you, you're not going to stay here. You're going to make it out of here. You're going to do this. And when it came time for the job at the county, we've been looking for quite some time. But I always say it was like a love letter from God because all of the qualities that they wanted were ones that he, the skills that he knew how to do. And then it said like advanced pay scale for a state certified apprenticeship. And he's like, well, check. And it was from the, the union that he's already in, check, okay. And then it was like, um, you know, all these things. And here he had 10 years of experience and he was able to go in and just breeze through the interview. And they were like, where have you been all my life? That's fabulous, fabulous. So two, two quick things on that. The first is my dad's story is very similar. My dad was a journeyman electrician that came from, I'm a fourth generation electrician, my nephew's fifth generation electrician. So we come from a long line of uh, bleeding hearts there. But, <laughs> uh, but my, my dad came, uh, he was a journeyman electrician, had an electrical job waiting for him um, and got fired on the first day because he didn't know the names of the tools or the material in English. He only spoke Spanish. And so he ended up spending um, quite a bit of time working in a factory until and going to school at night to learn the language until he could get back into the electrical industry and eventually progress similar um, to your husband. And so totally connect with that journey. And second point, and probably more important than that little family sidebar, um, apprenticeship is the best kept secret in America. Um, that story that you just described about a family transforming career, because that's exactly what it is. Um, People are simply not aware and employers are not aware that those opportunities exist. They reduce your crew composition costs. They allow you to participate in um, government connected uh, support systems that allow you to get employees trained specifically on the work that you need. That's why your husband's experience plugged right in to the government agency because there are specific tasks that that um, happen in progression through the, through an apprenticeship system that allow a worker to get the technical capacity. These are highly highly technical careers that are typically associated, and you and you um, can earn sixty to one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year with no college debt. 
I mean, th there is real value in the apprenticeship system. I was, um, you know, blessed, fortunate with the, you know, the opportunity to lead um, the federal um, redesign of that system and make it more friendly to business. Um, and so I'm really, really, I can't speak highly enough about it. Obviously, my fingerprints are on it. So, Well, I love it. I think it is something that when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, when we're talking about opportunities for um, minorities, I think it is something that should be, the trades is so important. You know, even in our own um, immediate family, our eldest daughter just this last week graduated from cosmetology school. And I told my girls, I said, look, you know, daddy did something totally different. I got a bachelor's degree because that's what I wanted to do, but that's not what you have to do. You know, post-secondary education is not optional, but it can look however you want it to look, you know, yeah. like, um, and so for, I, you know, I just think it's a, such an important um, component. Like you said, trade school is a very valid option for many, many people. Not everybody fits in the box. And yeah. um, and it's a very competitive market out there. And so- And, I think and the good news is that it's not limited to the trades anymore. It's not just about construction or technical, uh, um, physical careers. I mean, we have companies like Amazon, Microsoft, um, uh, Accenture. I mean, there's, there's big corporate 100s that are playing in this space because it makes more sense to them, you know, um, and I know we're a little bit off tangent, but it's actually go. connected to inclusion. So, but, uh, but there's a data point from the U.S. Department of Labor that shows most corporate environments utilize internship models or fellowship models. One year post hire on, a, on an intern, the retention rate is somewhere between 30 and 35%. And you're, those, those entrepreneurs in your audience are probably familiar with that percentage that you're actually training for other industry you're for your competition yeah. like one out of every four people you're moving through your employment cycle in an apprenticeship model three years post hire you're still at between 80 and 85 percent attention and the, and the reason why is because it's an earn while you learn That's system exactly so right you're making money and you're learning yes. the trade and you're getting acclimated to the environment that you're in. And so for those employers that are looking to diversify their workforce and take people from scratch, apprenticeship is like a power, power, power move. Uh, and they're just simply not aware. Well, and for those who aren't familiar with how an apprenticeship works, and this was, again, just how my husband's worked. So there was a school component and a work component. And so the school had a partnership with his employer and um, so he would go to school two to three nights a week at the local um, community college. And he would be working on a specific thing. Like, let's say he was working on blueprints. And then the school would coordinate with his job and say, OK, this quarter we're working on this. And they would put him in that section of the job site so that while he was working on it in school, he would be working on that at the job site. So he That's would have the practical application with the academic application. And so it is a complementary um, complementary education. And then in terms of retention, I mean, he was there for 10 years. So, you know, they definitely got their return on investment and he left as a foreman, um, you know, so he came in 
as a non-English speaking helper and left as a foreman um, graduate That's apprentice. Right. So for every, for every dollar an employer invests in apprenticeship, the, re, the ROI is $1.43. That's crazy. And, and it's just it's just a really smart investment. And actually, um, going to that end, the U.S. Department of Labor just released some grant applications, which we're supporting um, several partners around the country. They're focused on the expansion of these models into new industry sectors, as I described to you earlier. And they're also focused on diversity, making sure that women are employed in, in these environments, that minorities, that returning veterans, et cetera, are also included in these processes. So there's a significant infusion of cash coming down um, the pipeline. Uh, it's already uh, on the street. The money's already on the street. So um, the, the USDOL just issued two grants, one for state applications that has about $87.5 million dollars of investment to expand those systems. So depending on what state you live in, um, you should be looking at yeah. how apprenticeship can support your business. And then um, federal, uh, four federal grants that are, uh, they're investing over $31 million. And so there's significant support that, um, that can aid your business as you're creating work opportunities uh, through these models. And so we're excited to be a part of those discussions and hopeful that we'll be able to, to demonstrate how um, tracking diversity and inclusion and the utilization of these opportunities uh, can really create a, a transforming experience, just oh, like yeah. we did in the town. I mean, I, I mean, absolutely. I, I'm I'm grateful every day for um, you know the well the confidence in in him, the skill level. I mean, I don't know a dang thing about what he does. It took me like ten years to figure out what he does, but it's something with welding. I would tell people, but um, but I hear from other people, they would tell me like, he's actually really gifted. Like he's really skilled at what he does. And then I'm like, well, of course he is, you know, like I'm all proud, you know, whatever. <laughs> but I just, I, I think, I just think of the fact of like, what would have happened if he had not fallen into, I mean, like literally we would have been a family that would have still been waitressing and, you know, and still been working as cooks and like scrapping and there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. It's mm -hmm. just that we've created an environment where, um, you know, we can dream a little bit bigger and, um, and that's all because other people have taken initiative to see us and say, Hey, actually, I think you have potential and, you know, and then say like, wouldn't that be cool if you could do something different here? Let me show you this thing. And so, I think that, you know, brings us back to, you know, the, what we were talking about in terms of paying attention to diversity and inclusion in, um, in the corporate environment. So tell me a little bit about how the businesses that are paying attention to diversity are doing as opposed to those who are not paying attention. Sure. So all the data indicates um, I have not seen anything that, that says the opposite. When you diversify the mindset, the leadership, the approach, and, and your workforce, you are very likely positioning um, for additional success well beyond your business model. So McKinsey has an analysis that shows that for those companies in the top quartile of um, diversity mix, 
amongst their employment. Um, 35%, they're 35% more likely to experience financial returns higher than the median uh, business in their space. They're also, if you're in the, if you're in the top um, percentage of, um, on gender diversity, they will likely be 15% above their performance rate of the, of the average company um, in their industry sector. So the, the numbers don't lie. It, um, diversity equals monetary gain. And it's also about market capture, right? Your ability to be responsive to market as an organization uh, really depends on how you look uh, to your client base, right? If you're trying, if you're busy trying to uh, capture dollars from a particular market segment and your reps don't reflect the community that your or your advertising doesn't reflect it or your board doesn't reflect it, um, people are paying attention to that. The consumer is very socially conscious now. Um, they're, they're really paying attention to where they're putting their money um, and who they're spending their dollars with. And if you can't demonstrate that you have a sensitivity or at least an awareness of what their needs are, who they are, where they're from, and, and what is valuable to them, um, they're not going to open up their wallets for you. And so there's, there's a variety of, of ways that this is indicated, right? Diverse companies are 70% more likely to capture new market share in organizations. That came from um, a market watch analysis. Um, you know, Forbes also says that the margins for companies with diverse management teams is nearly 10% higher than the companies that don't have diverse management teams. So your leadership matters, your workforce design strategies matter. It's really important for the company's bottom line. If you're if you're looking at, for example, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 60%, um, 60 to 65% of working age adults um, between the ages of 18 and 52 are Latinos. And when you couple them to marriage, like in your case, mm-hmm. it go, that number goes up to above 80%. So if you're not paying attention to the Hispanic market, the earning power of the Latino in the U.S. is quadrupling. And oh, by the way, families with, with children under 18 are 60% more likely to be Hispanic uh, in the U.S. And so the next generation of worker who's going to be earning money to spend in the U.S. is also Latino. And so so it's really important for companies to begin to understand where the money is coming from that funds their interests. And you may not see them in your community because we keep our heads down and <laughs> we're, we're quiet and we don't uh, we don't bother anybody unless it's a weekend and we're playing some music, uh, right? We're, you know, we're typically not going to be you know uh, highly visible, but we're we're present and we're a growing presence in every state of the union. You know, I, I'm I'm on the board of Alpha, the Association of Latino Professionals for America, and we're the largest Hispanic professional um, membership organization in the country. We have nearly or just over 100,000 members, um, chapters in every state, um, 50 professional, 50 plus professional uh, chapters in major cities across the U.S., and we're connected to chapters. Uh, there's Alpha chapters on over 147 university camp- campuses. Fortune 
1000s are around our corporate table because they want Latino, young Latino professionals in their organizations. So every company that you could think of that's trying to get into the Latino wallet is connected to our organization in some way, shape or form. Every brand that is popping into your head right now is there. And so, you know, so those organizations are recognizing the wave of um, opportunity that the American Latino represents. And not to say that other communities don't represent a similar opportunity. I'm just highlighting uh, as we're talking about diversification and diversity and the value that it represents for business owners in the market space. If you're not thinking about inclusion in a very real way, you will not be in business for a very long time. So true. And when you were saying that you may not see us out in the community because you keep your heads down, it made me think of, and it's so long, it's like an early 90s film. (laughs) And it's called A Day in the Life Without a Mexican. And if the listeners have not watched this film, you must watch this film. Find it. I don't know where you can find it. It's satirical, okay? But the, the point is in the film is that the rapture happens And the only people that go to heaven are Mexicans. And so everyone who's left behind has to figure out what they're going to do because there's no Mexicans left. And so it just highlighted all the ways that Latinos are actively involved in the community in ways that you don't see. And um, it's just, it's, it's a hilarious movie, but it's it's meant to make you think, and it does. Like you're laughing, but you're like, this is like kind of true too. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. it, you know, many many times Latinos can be unassuming. You know, they're not. You know, they may not speak up about their accomplishments as much as other people might. Um, but they uh, they're very hardworking, and there's a lot of contributions to the community. And so, yeah, it's a it's just when you said you said that specifically, I thought like immediately I was like, that's because they were taken up by the rapture, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, I mean, it, it just and it's an emphasis point, right? You have to pay attention to the way the landscape has changed. I mean, clearly, there's a divide in the country. You know, half of the country doesn't want to move away from the historical roles that everybody has played, right? But the reality is that the economic, political, and um, social influencing powers of people of color and women are changing the dynamic in America. And you can choose to be mad about it, but you are going to have to deal with it. And so, you know, that's just the reality. And so for a business owner, a business leader, a community engaged person, um, not to pay attention to the reality of the landscape uh, is a major fail, major, major fail. What would you say um, the difference, what's the difference if somebody's focusing on community relationships and the external instead of internal staffing. What does that mean to you, and and what's that difference? So, so there's very powerful ways to engage with community, and they can be very productive. 
But um, just like your sister-in-law, they'll sniff you out if you're full of it, right? Mm-hmm. The, they know when, <laughs> when you're not, when you're um, not real. And the, they will, um, uh, community will respond in kind. If you're only focused on the external window washing of, you know, contributing a few dollars here, sponsoring some events over there, you know, uh, paying for whatever it is that you're paying for, giving your product, you know, for for its utilization, et cetera, they, that makes an impact, but it's not um, transformative. When you look inside of your organization, and this this is the important thing, is when you do this on purpose, you can generate real value, not only for yourself, but also for those communities that you want to transform into clients, right? You can do well by doing good, but you have to do it in a way that's that's purposeful and direct and you know, where change happens is on the inside in every aspect, right? Whether it's you personally or professionally or in any other aspect of your life, where it happens is when you pay attention to what's going on on the inside. If you're not paying attention to your culture inside of your organization and the reality of how an employee moves through your system, what kinds of false barriers you're creating to entry into your system, Right. So I'll give you an example. It's not uncommon for an HR leader to say we want the best caliber people possible in these jobs. So everybody that comes in the door has to have a bachelor's degree or an MBA or whatever bar they want to set. Well, I would challenge that HR leader to say, why does a customer service clerk or a receptionist or an entry level IT person have to have that type of Degree simply because you want the ability to recognize that they've completed a process, you're still going to have to train that individual on your internal systems. 100%. The typical experience is an 18 month to 24 month trajectory on internal training for any employee that walks in the door. So you're, you're, eliminating potential candidates into your system who, by the way, you could pay less for Yep. also. Right. So by creating this false barrier, and this is just one example, but by creating these types of false barriers to entry into your organization, you're also eliminating cultural competency that could potentially feed your system. Here's another example. It's not uncommon, for example, in your husband's organization at King County, I would imagine that in middle management, there's probably people that have been around for a decade, maybe 20 years, that are in middle management, people of all different sorts of rainbow colors uh, and persuasions and gender, et cetera, uh, uh, in the system, who cannot qualify for a leadership role, a director role, a, a division head role, or whatever, because they don't have a specific degree or they haven't been in an internal training pipeline that would lead them to that. They know how the organization runs. They know how the business operates. They know a variety of different technical capacities inside of the culture of the organization and where, how to move and maneuver and connect networks inside of the organization. But they don't have some piece of paper that somebody put that is critical to that particular leadership role, 
um, and therefore they are they are making twenty percent less than they should be. They are you know stuck in at the at the ceiling of mm-hmm. a of a career that does not allow them to contribute at the level that they could potentially contribute. And oh, by the way, the people that are qualified for those roles and do have those qualifications typically come with less experience from outside. I was just going to say that. Yeah. They don't don't know. They don't know the company. They don't know the culture. They're coming from the outside. That's the common complaint is that they, that they come in with lots of ideas. Um, Lots of them have been recycled ideas because they don't know because they haven't been around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we tried that 15 years ago and it didn't work then and it's not going to work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, so 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 as a business owner, we have we have what we're looking for is is capacity. The the ability for somebody to learn our processes rapidly, to execute, to buy in to our mission, our values, right? To really demonstrate um, productivity and client outcomes as rapidly as possible to be flexible, adaptive. Those are the quality. I don't care if you have a piece of paper or not. I want to know if you can do the job, if you can learn how to do the job yes. and if you can deliver for my client. Yeah. That's what I, that's, what's important to me. Cause if it don't make money, it don't make sense. That's a hundred percent. Correct. So at the end of the day, the client is not going to say, well, this product is okay, but I just need to know one thing. Did the person that created it have a bachelor's degree? Because otherwise I don't want it. You know, like they, they don't care. They don't care. They just want it. And you're seeing the market. Well. You're, you're really seeing the market respond to this, right? You look at companies like Microsoft. These tech companies are the first place where you're really seeing it demonstrated on a regular basis where they're they're not they're no longer focused on degree individuals what they're looking are are certifications that are specific to the job that they want performance on they want competency capacity and the certs that are specific to the work delivery the work product that they're trying to generate Um, it's no longer about the big blanket degree Right. I mean, you can have an underwater basket weaving degree and that's fine, but it doesn't really translate into anything. And that's the thing too, is like, I mean, I, so my degree is administrative management and information technology. It's like, which means that I can tell you which software can help you run your office better. Um, But I can't fix your computer. Um, And it's already outdated because um, the degree itself was largely built around the office platform, which is completely different. And I'm a Mac user. So if you put me in an all windows environment, I would probably like peck around on the computer, like a second grader, my daughter could probably run circles around me, you know, like I'm all Google, all Mac all the time. And so, you know, like, that's the thing is like, you can get a bachelor's degree and I did learn, I mean, especially the administrative management side of the degree that I got, I did learn amazing things. And for me, it was almost a form of apprenticeship because I went one class at a time because I got married so young. And so I was becoming a manager and learning how to lead while taking organizational leadership classes and, you know, different management classes and, you know, Like I remember one class was customer relationship management. I was like, this is going to be great. It's going to be about customer service and it's going to be all, no, 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 it's CRM. Like 
the stuff you plug your like Salesforce. And right. so I, the first day one was a very rude awakening for me, <laughs> but yeah. it was just, you know, it was just, just a, like a highlight of the thing is that yes, you, a bachelor's degree or these degrees that they're requiring, they do say, yes, they stuck it out for a program, but that's all it says. Largely the yeah. skills can, can expire. And what you really need, you know, and again, you're going to need to train this person regardless of the degree that they have for your own setting, no matter what. Yeah. And and it's not to minimize the value of the degree because there is value in having somebody that's well-rounded, has participated in, in large environments and, you know, been challenged academically to, to use that brain muscle in, in ways that are creative and um, produce work um, that's organized, et cetera. So there's value in those degrees. But the reality is that you can get that education on your on your laptop um, through a, a bunch of different platforms now. And so and so really, uh, when looking for talent and specifically diverse talent, you, you need to be really fluid and flexible about the pool that you're fishing in. Everybody wants the Harvard grad, the Yale grad, whatever. But the reality is that there's a lot of talented people out there that are just as capable and just as smart and can deliver the outcomes for your organization, given the right information and the right environment and the opportunity to perform and deliver. Absolutely. Well, what do you think that small and medium-sized businesses can do to equip themselves so that they're the employer of choice or the business that um, the communities feel are their partner? What what can we do to position ourselves that way? So I really think that just practically speaking, as I, as I said, do it on purpose. Wh- wh- however you engage, right? You don't have to create an employer retention group. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to um, create all these systems and stuff. But what you do need to do is, is, is open your mind, your doors, your, your uh, positioning around who you want at the table. If you look around your business and you see the same kind of people and not just diversity of skin, but diversity of thought, um, and, and all you see is the same kind of yes people around you, you're going to be lost that if you're not already, you're going to be lost at some point because, because you're not being challenged. Your organization is not being challenged to think about what other potential customers or what even your existing customer base could find value. in. So the, the, the couple of things that small businesses can do is connect to organizations that can educate them about diversity and, and some of the priorities that they should be thinking about. There's a lot of free resources through the SBA and through other uh, places like that, um, through uh, minority uh, um, uh, associations, et cetera, that can partner with your business to to begin to help you think through some of the places that you might want to think about diversifying. Also, look at the way that you're hiring and the barriers that you've created for entry, because we feel that certain packaging makes it easier for us to not make mistakes about hiring, we eliminate 90% of the available talent before they even come through our application process. So does it require a little bit more effort to do your due diligence 
on uh, on folks that may not meet the all the check boxes that are normally in place? Absolutely. You have to be smart. You have to be prudent. You're not going to let any anybody uh, with a with a, a shady background into your into your house, right? So you you want to make sure that the people that you're bringing in are fully vetted. But that doesn't mean that they can't contribute and that they can't contribute at the highest levels. If you create the opportunity, if you you have to be prepared to equip them, that's the other thing yes. that you can do. You have to equip them with the knowledge. You have to transfer. And that's another thing that business owners, particularly small business owners, we want to own the entire process. It's my secret sauce. You know, I, I, I built this thing on my back and I'm not going to give it away. Well, you know what? I, I learned a few years ago that even if you give it away with a shiny red bow on it and you, and you shine it up and sprinkle gold dust on it, people are lazy and they're not going to use it. They're not going to take it and steal it from you and magnify it as if it's their own. They're just simply lazy. And so I have no fear of sharing our process. Oh, yeah. I do, the same, I do the same thing. And I was, yeah. and I really want to speak to this too, because since I do, since my company, Link Consulting Solutions, we specialize in, um, in several things, one of them being client re-engagement, but the, our flagship product that we service that we provide is um, virtual assistant matchmaking, finding virtual assistants in the Philippines. And I get all these questions. I mean, I just get the most, like some of them are ridiculous questions. Some of them, I, I'm, but I, it's coming from fear and a lack of knowledge. And so I'll get the question, well, what if they don't work out? Okay. <laughs> so what if you hire somebody here in the U.S. and they don't work out? Like they're not going to work out. So yes, there is an investment by hiring me as a, as a virtual assistant matchmaker that you're going to lose that money. But how much is your time worth? for the search that you would have done. So you're paying either way and then there's risk either way. And then the next question, and it's always the determining factor is exactly what you said. You have to equip and empower. If you do not equip your employees, in this case, contractors, but I just call them employees because they work for me and I feel like they're my family. And you know, so if I did not equip them with the tools they need and the knowledge they need and the passwords they need and the the inner workings of my crazy brain, they don't know how to read my mind. And then I'm asking them to do things for me. And then if I don't empower them to make decisions, then how do they grow? How do they help me? How do I get out of the hamster wheel of just doing it all myself? And then in, in that case, I'm just doing it all myself and paying somebody else too. And they're frustrated and I'm frustrated. And so this this transcends, you know, I think it's just good practice all the way around is look at your hiring process, look at the barriers that you are putting into place, then really, really take inventory. Am I doing due diligence? Am I understanding that there is risk no matter what, no matter what? Yeah. And, and the other thing that I would say is ask your clients, ask your partners. Yes. You know, am I being responsive to your commitment to diversity? Yes. Do we reflect what you expect to see in your partnerships? Are we providing you the kind of support that meets the needs of your diverse talent? 
of your client base, et cetera, because that'll help you really see, because, you know, we have these, these little compartments as business owners in our minds, right? Like when, when my wife tells me to do something versus when she's acting as the, as the COO and the owner of the company, and she tells me to do something. And when my client tells me to do something or my employee tells me to do something, each one of those is received differently. Yes. And, and the one that I act the fastest on and most directly with is when my client is telling me, yes. we, I need to see this. I need to see that. I have a need for X. I have, you know, yes. I, need, I need your thoughts on Y. That's where the real, real rubber meets the road. And so if we're not asking them to help us serve them better, whether it's about diversity or not, right? If we're not in that process on a regular and consistent basis, you're also going to be uh, impacted at some point. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, okay. So I always have two questions that I ask at the end of every episode. So the first question, which I'm actually really fascinated to hear because we've covered so much and like, I also want to stop and take a moment. You You glossed over it so quickly, but you served on the Obama administration. So like, like you really, really are vested in, um, in doing things in the labor market in a way that makes and affects real change in the community. You so much so that you went up the ladder to try to affect change. And so I know you're a very humble man, but I want people to really understand that that's what we're talking about here. It's not just a fluffy conversation. We're talking about affecting intentional change in our community. Um, so with that in mind, Tell me what you think if someone was to walk away from this conversation and they were like, wow, Daniel is awesome and Raya is the coolest ever, but I can't remember anything they said except for this one thing. What would that one thing be? Do it on purpose. Yes. Oh my God, I love that. Just do it on purpose. Whatever it is that wherever you want to focus, however you want to engage with including a broader mindset, a broader um, uh, a group of folks do it purposefully. Don't, don't have step, you know, make sure that you follow through and actually think through the kind of impact that it can have on your organization and be selfish. It's okay for you to be selfish because it'll improve your business and it'll improve your bottom line. As I shared, all the data indicates it's, it's a smart business decision to be inclusive. So when you do it, treat it as any other any other serious business investment you make. You don't you don't um, uh, you don't act cheap on your accounting system, on your lawyer, on you know. Treat this process of inclusion as a real investment in your business that's going to yield returns, and do it on purpose. Love that. And what would you say doesn't have to be related to the topic at all, but what is the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? So there's two of them. Um, they both came from my dad. And um, he, he was a, a very uh, wise and old spirit. Uh, so the first one is kind of um, just kind of out there, but it's very powerful. He used to say, um, don't worry about the mules going blind, just load the wagon, which I translated into don't worry about everything that can happen and go wrong. Do the work 
that you're supposed to do. Focus on the area that you're supposed to deliver and whatever else influences that outcome, at least you know that you performed what you were supposed to perform. The wagon is full. Yeah, the wagon is loaded and ready to go. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so that so so that's the first one. The second one that that I basically live with every single day. Um, it's kind of my now has become my mantra, and anybody that knows me has probably heard it, and they've probably heard it more than once. Is my dad used to say, "Lead, follow, or get the hell out of the way." I love that, and 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 that's a very powerful way. So you can enter into any environment and really understand the role that you are either want to play or are gonna play very rapidly if you're thinking that way. Either you're gonna drive the bus. You're going to ride on the bus or you're just going to let that bus leave without you. Well, and there's room there for everybody, right? Because we're not, not everybody is going to be a leader. Like if if we were all leaders, we just have a big line of a parade and there'd be nobody behind us. You got to have soldiers. You got to have have soldiers. soldiers. So, I mean, and so we're not all built that way where we want to lead. But I love that. Like, if you're not going to participate in the process by leading or following, then get out of the way. Get out of the way. Movement is yeah, happening. Don't impede it. That's yes. right. Don't impede yes. it. Oh, it's so good. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate your time. And I can't wait until COVID is over and I can actually, we're both in Seattle, which we found out on our, right. um, <laughs> so I can't wait until we can actually have lunch in person sometime, someday soon. Absolutely. Um, Meet your wife as well. But thank you so much for being with us on the show. Well, it's a genuine pleasure. Um, We have lots of resources on our website. So I just want to make sure, you know, uh, that you're aware. um, So business leaders can get free resources on our website. Um, And I'm happy to support and I'm grateful for the opportunity to share some thoughts with you and, you know, just continue to share and, and be open. You're doing a really powerful thing. Thank you. And we will have all of Daniel's information and iPartnerships information in the show notes. So please check it out. Definitely give them a look, download the resources that are available. Daniel is an author, so check out his books as well. And um, we thank you guys for joining us for another episode of the Client Experience Revolution podcast. I'm your host, Raya Gonzalez, and we will see you next time. You know what I love? It means so much to me that you took the time to listen to this episode. If you did enjoy this episode or any of our other episodes, and you'd like to help support the Client Experience Revolution podcast, please share it with others. Post about it on your social media or even leave a rating and review. And if you want to catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at link.consulting. That's L-I-N-Q dot consulting. On Twitter at Link Consulting. And even better, find us on YouTube. The channel is Raya Gonzalez. And you can see all of our podcast episodes in video format if you're just curious to see what our guests look like. We appreciate you so much. And that's why we're excited to see you next time.